Welcome to Playground Books, essays revisiting the stories I first read as a kid and loved enough to spend my recesses reading. I am not actually intending to make this a podcast focused solely on scholastic books, whose protagonists are mildly precocious boys with big plans and big challenges to undertake. However, upon digging through my old bookshelves and bins for the paperbacks that managed to survive across the years, I happened across one book in particular. On the cover, there is a boy holding forward a black-capped pen with an air of confidence that says, I win. I remember the whole litany of this series by Andrew Clements, on each of them an elementary school kid like myself at the time, proudly displaying some essential object, pushed forward so that the forced perspective makes their fist nearly larger than their head. And truthfully, I think the one that lands strongest in my memory was titled The School Story, about a young girl who wrote a book and was able, through a series of impersonations and half-hidden secrets, to get it actually published. It's no small wonder why that one sparked my interest in particular. The first of this series, and the one closest to being a proper classic, is the same one that I found on my bookshelf. I suppose I lied to you earlier. On the cover, the object the boy is holding is not a pen. It is a frindle. Frindle was published in 1996, and although that fact is obvious in its pages, what with students going to two different sets of encyclopedias when there's research to be done, and a sabotage class picture that can't be retaken because the photographer is out of film, it is at the same time wildly surprising because of how prescient the story is. The main character, Nick Allen, is a near troublemaker, the kind of kid who's at the very edge of being too smart for his own good. He faces down a notoriously strict English teacher with a devoted and rigid love of the dictionary by creating a new word for pen. The word and the questions it asks about where words come from and how definitions are decided becomes a phenomenon, first in his class, then in his school, then town, then nationally, and it keeps growing from there, through both the channels of traditional media, newspapers, local television, merchandise, and the more fundamental grapevines and backroads of schoolyard communication. The word frindle is created and spread by kids, partly as an in-joke, partly as an act of self-definition, acknowledgement that users are in on the joke and clued into the reference, until it becomes so widespread that it is part of normal vocabulary and legitimized as a quote-unquote real word. Listener, this book is about memes. Okay. There's the clickbait tagline. I'll back off now and explain what the more interesting conversation is that's going on here. The inciting incident is the entrance of Nick and his peers into the fifth grade, where all students have to face notorious English teacher Mrs. Granger. Nick immediately marks himself as the one to watch and watch out for in the class, when he attempts to distract Mrs. Granger by asking a well-timed question about where the words in a dictionary come from. Mrs. Granger, rather than getting sidetracked, assigns him the question as an extra homework assignment, which is how we get the aforementioned dated scene about encyclopedias. 
Despite his report covering the basics and facts about the history of the dictionary, the earliest publications, the idea of root words, and so on, it only introduces the essential question, who decides what words mean? And Mrs. Granger's answer, that you do and we do, puts forth the theory that the rest of the story tests. Before we get to Frindle, there's another word we need to define, and that's neologism. It means a newly coined word or a new usage or expression of a word, coming from the stems neo, new, and logos word. The funny thing is that every example I can give will only horribly date the writing of this episode. An app, they, did you grok a concept or Google a fact, freebooting videos, subtweeting, asking for crowdfunding, and whatever's going on on TikTok these days. Neologisms can include portmanteaus, which are combinations of words blended together, like blog is a weblog, as well as slang and abbreviations commonly used enough to become words in their own right. Definition shifting is dictated. Neologisms are the answer to whenever someone tells you that's a made-up word. Turns out all words are made up. And sometimes they get added to dictionaries. For an example, Merriam-Webster, in its most recent update at time of recording, even created a new entry for the at symbol when used as a verb. Because when I say, don't at me, chances are you know what I mean, so that's successful communication. That's one school of thought, the more descriptivist variety, that makes its rules based on describing actual usage, changing with the times. Another tack to take is prescriptivism, the metaphorical red squiggly underline on all of your slang, setting out prescribed rules that usage should follow. I'm between the two extremes myself. I'm the kind of person who has very strong opinions on comma usage and will throw down over subjunctive verbs, so I can't say I don't have some prescriptivism in me. I'm apprehensive of reference guides that are more like jello than bedrock. But I won't waste my time counting the neologisms that I've said since the start of this episode. Hey, I just used clickbait a minute ago and didn't even blink when I wrote it into the script. And I also take a nearly academic fascination in the way new meanings can arise out of public consciousness. Which leads us back to Nick. After his intentionally annoying report, we get the moment of invention, where he's walking back from school with all these questions spinning around in his head. He finds a pen on the side of the road, and Nick has that lovely mythic bolt of Hollywood-esque inspiration, the light bulb above his head, to call this object a frindle. It's a nonsense word, intentionally. And I do find it really endearing that the author's story of how he came up with the idea is so similar to how it occurs in the book. Clements wrote that he was at a speaking event for first graders, trying to explain the idea that words mean what we all decide they mean. In his own words, pulling a pen from my pocket, I said, for example, if all of us right here today said that we would never call this thing a pen again, and that from now on we would call it a frindle. I just made up the word frindle, and they all laughed because it sounded funny. And then I said, no, really, if enough other people start to use our new word, then in five or ten years, frindle could be a real word in the dictionary. He goes on to give the same example that eventually occurs in the book, that if you go into a local store and ask for a frindle, point at a container of pens, and then keep having different kids going in there all asking for a frindle, the clerk is going to know what you mean pretty soon. Nick and his friends go through this little act in the book, and then sign an oath to always use the word frindle instead of pen. It makes me think of that Margaret Mead quote, Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. 
And when you've got a group of kids who are thoughtful enough to come up with this idea, you can bet they're committed enough, because anytime they get in trouble for it, they're martyrs of the middle school. Soon after, Nick and his friends have their whole class on their side, and Mrs. Granger steps up as an antagonist, keeping kids after school writing lines for their disrespect of the word pen, which of course only makes it more popular. Stupidly determined children who are just naive enough to actually accomplish huge goals are the heart and soul of all the best middle grade novels, and I love it. There's a really perceptive depiction here of interconnected communities like elementary schools, the kind where, sooner or later, Everybody is going to know everything, even if there are no formal sanctioned modes of announcement to get people on the same page. The academic study of folklore is obsessed with this kind of information transfer, of tracking how the same playground rope-skipping songs or clapping rhymes, for example, jump between schools, states, countries. It's wildly complicated but also completely decentralized, which makes it nigh impossible to nail down. When you've got people in groups and the potential for information to jump between groups, it is going to, and good luck keeping up. Folklorists literally spend their entire academic careers carefully cataloging, interviewing, transcribing, tracking, capturing culture, and in the time it takes them to pause for a breath, everything has changed again. I do really enjoy that specific example of playground rhymes because it's one of the many cases where the formal establishment is frantically trying to understand and catch up with the culture of kids. With folklore, with the idea of neologisms, at the heart is a willingness to legitimize and take seriously complicated youth culture. Even if trends are fleeting, beyond the built-in turnover rate of people aging up, and even if new vocabulary and new in-jokes seem to arise out of nowhere, with more careful attention, it's clear how none of it is truly arbitrary. Or, for the pieces that are, there's a purpose to the arbitrariness. Frindle does not have stems from Latin or Greek. It's not even an adaptation or slang of an existing word. Nick Allen and his friends are testing whether it's possible to will a word into existence. So they're using a word that, theoretically, didn't exist before they said it. But that doesn't mean it's meaningless, and it absolutely doesn't mean that it's not powerful. The next step for the word frindle in the book is to get some help from traditional media. A local newspaper reporter hears about the word sweeping the school, and that up to a hundred students a day are being kept late to copy lines in punishment for using it. She visits the school and writes an article, which then gets picked up by a national news station that also runs a short segment, interviewing Nick and Mrs. Granger and a guy who had started selling official frindles, cheap pens with the word printed on the side. Charmingly, Nick even ends up on The Late Show with David Letterman, in addition to a handful of other wide-reaching platforms and publications. This again is where Frindle feels ahead of its time. While it may seem a little overly lucky that everyone everywhere thinks this story of a made-up word is brilliant and hilarious, one, this is a children's chapter book, so forgive the plot for being a little thin. And two, how many times have you seen a person stumble into a viral video or a meme and then get interviewed about it on some morning show? They all say the same thing, too, how it's so strange, and they never expected, and it's cool but weird, and so on and so on. It's the same trajectory as Nick's, although nowadays we tend to cut out the middleman of print media, 
because everything's online and you've got to be fast to stay on the cresting wave of culture. This conjunction of old and new media is what struck me most rereading Frindle. Every time I try to talk my way into this topic, my brain immediately goes to the internet. All my phrasing is canted toward that venue. Digital folklore, which, yes, is a real field, it's a wild trip to be in a university lecture about Slender Man, let me tell you, is an even greater uphill climb than regular folklore, because the rate of transmittal and evolution is cranked up as far as it'll go. Frindle provides a template which is scaled up in the information transfer of in-jokes and evolving vocabulary seen on social media platforms and other corners of the internet today. They comprise a new language which digital natives tend to be fluent in almost sheerly by osmosis and ambient awareness. Who decides what words are and what they mean? You do, and we do. I'm at risk of rosy-eyed romanticism, so let me take a sidebar to talk about rediscovery of ideas. A significant joy of revisiting old books that you read when you were little, one of the reasons I do recommend it, is stumbling back across little ideas, little jokes, little facts that have been stored away in your memory without any roots to where they originally came from. I unearthed a few while reading Frindle. One is the idea of how to ask a perfect time-wasting question. A quote here, Nick was an expert at asking the delaying question, also known as the teacher stopper, or the guaranteed time waster. At three minutes before the bell, in that split second between the end of today's classwork and the announcement of tomorrow's homework, Nick could launch a question guaranteed to sidetrack the teacher long enough to delay or even wipe out the homework assignment. Timing was important, but asking the right question, that was the hard part. Questions about stuff in the news, questions about the college the teacher went to, Questions about the teacher's favorite book, or sport, or hobby. That brief tutorial has been lingering in the far corners of my head since I first read it, a helpful return search result when my peers would try to get teachers off topic during classes. Remember this, consider that. It was fun to be able to relink the source, and reminded me again why I find it so compelling to examine the stories we read growing up. At times, I feel like nothing but pieces and building blocks of ideas that are neither strictly mine nor unexamined from whatever source happened across my path. Input, output, processing, storage, I have constructed myself from what is not myself. I find that an important concept to chew on. What I like most is how when Nick asks this question, every other character knows what he's doing. His classmates are in on the joke, he's their compatriot on a mission for all of them, and of course, because teachers aren't stupid, Mrs. Granger knows what he's doing well enough to deftly squash his attempt. This is but one example of another through-line of Frindle. That is, students versus teachers. Mrs. Granger as the villain. After the excitement of the newspaper and television debut of the word Frindle, the book moves ahead through time. 10 years. Back near the start, Mrs. Granger had shown Nick a sealed envelope and told him to sign his name across the back, so he would know when he received it that it had not been changed. A secret to Nick at the time, that letter was a time capsule, to be sent only when Frindle was added to the dictionary, and it recontextualizes the character of Mrs. Granger and the battle the two of them have been waging over the course of the book. Permit me one last excerpt from this letter, as it is read by college-aged Nick. 
the word Frindle has existed for less than three weeks. I now see that this is the kind of chance that a teacher hopes for and dreams about. A chance to see bright young students take an idea they have learned in a boring old classroom and put it to a real test in their own world. I confess that I am very excited to see how it all turns out. I am mostly here to watch it happen. But somehow, I think I have a small part to play in this drama, and I have chosen to be the villain. Every good story needs a bad guy, don't you think? For a children's book, I think that's a pretty good twist reveal. It's easy and automatic for the young audience to accept the archetype that the character of Mrs. Granger is filling. The horrible strict teacher, here to give you homework and mark up your papers in dripping red ink. We all imagine ourselves as the heroes and label our villains as we care to. From a literary perspective, Mrs. Granger is also a useful example of the difference between a villain and an antagonist. She is undoubtedly the antagonist of this story. That is not undone. She acts in opposition to the protagonist, Nick, and his goals. This is what creates conflict in the book, which gives the reader, and the other characters like Nick's classmate and the newspaper reporter, a reason to care and to pay attention. She does so by taking up in addition the mantle of villain with her lectures and attentions, but in truth was on the side of Frindle the whole time. This not only makes her a more well-rounded character, but also a lot more fun, especially when you can notice little details like anonymous tips sent to the newspaper and carefully worded statements that can be understood multiple ways. It's a lesson learned of imagining the supposed characters in your life as real people, which is a surprisingly complex takeaway from a story that was nearly made into a picture book instead of being expanded. With all respect to Mr. Clements, we're not in this for the prose, we're in this for the moral, and this is a good one. Finally, a recommendation. If you've read Frindle or this discussion was interesting to you, I'm going to stretch to recommend the book An Absolutely Remarkable Thing. While it is fairly hard science fiction, and a far more plot-heavy and convoluted story, but with potential aliens and secret puzzles, it also has some of the most perceptive commentary on the nature of viral fame and how ideas are spread and argued for and against on the modern social internet. Most of what I discussed here was the optimistic view, of looking at how complex and compelling digital folklore and communication pathways can be, but the social internet is a tool like any other. Its use is dependent upon the user, and impressively powerful can very quickly become frighteningly powerful. That's just a little of what an absolutely remarkable thing is about, and I think it's an interesting evolution of Nick's pre-internet viral sensation. Thanks for listening. The music is by David Hillowitz, the book is by Andrew Clements, the opinions are by me. For the next episode, I'll be rereading A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Langle. Talk to you then. Bye.